Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning. Hurry, you'll be dead before. What? Before you reach the morning, or the end of the poem is clear, or love safe in the walled city. Now, to stand still, to be here. Feel my own weight and density. The black shadow on the paper is my hand. The shadow of a word, as thought shapes the shaper. As thought shapes the shaper. Falls heavily on the page, is heard. All fuses now, falls into place. From wish to action, word to silence, my work, my love, my time, my face gathered into one intense gesture of growing like a plant. As slowly as the ripening fruit, fertile, detached, and always spent, falls but does not exhaust the root, so all the palm is, can give, grows in me, to become the song made so and rooted by love. Now there is time and time is young. Oh, in the single hour I live all of myself and do not move. I, the pursued, who madly ran, stand still, stand still, and stop the sun. So says the estimable and timeless poet, May Sarton, In her 1930 poem, Now I Become Myself, Linda Barnett Osborne noted in the Washington Post book review that in whatever May Sarton writes, one can hear the human heart pulsing just below the surface. I think that if we stop and listen close enough, we can hear our own hearts pulsing, asking the same questions about identity, who we are, who we are to become, and how we arrived at the person we are today. These are the questions about meaning, about purpose, about identity. These aren't only the questions of the poet, they are also the questions that permeate the pages of scripture. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, There they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which you can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come 
will not be remembered by those who follow them. Thank you, Solomon, uh, for that bleak reminder uh, that our lives are but a fading breath. Um, Nothing screams Happy Father's Day quite like that. Uh, There's a reason why Hallmark rarely quotes Solomon in their holiday cards. Uh, But beneath the surface of the words of Solomon are the longings of Solomon. I think one of the core elements of what Solomon longs for and what Sartan captures is the desire to be known in this life. Even as we know others, it's not enough to have our own breath, our own experiences, or our own universe. Our existence is validated in our connection to other sojourners. We must become human when we connect our deep desires to the deep needs of all other people. That is a new father who holds his helpless child the first time will tell you. That baby, their breath, their first looks, it transcends the meism and the lone wolf experience that so many of us uh, exist in. That does scream Happy Father's Day. If you are new to Springs Community Church or a guest, I want to say welcome to you. We are so glad you're here. We are indeed celebrating Father's Day today. This is a community of acceptance, a community of love, and a community of grace. In, in celebrating Father's Day, we know that it triggers deep emotions and calls up many memories for a lot of us. For some, it's a day of gratitude, it's a day of joy. It's a day of recalling time spent with dad. Uh, For others, it's a day of ache, uh, for recalling disappointment, for bringing up painful memories, some of which we have for our own failures as fathers. And in between those two extremes is the reality that most of experience, most of us experience, that our experiences of our earthly father are mixed. They're both and. They're filled with joy, and they're filled with pain. So this is a day of deep celebration, but it's also a day of deep triggering. Um, But we do want to celebrate because God uses fathers in such mighty ways. I've been blessed by a phenomenal father. Many of you have been blessed with phenomenal fathers. So we do want to take a moment as we begin to simply celebrate dads. So if we can give a big round of applause to all the fathers who are here. For the fathers who aren't here, uh, for the fathers who've gone home to be with the Lord, And for those who want to be fathers, but for whatever reason, God hasn't opened that yet, we absolutely celebrate you. Today, I'm going to give a hybrid sermon of sorts. And I want to tell you where I'm going so as not to confuse you. I want to focus on the theme of being known uh, in and as our true selves. Uh, That is, our God-given identity. Each of us are born with particular DNAs. We have intrinsic identities. They're knit into us but we become ourselves over time. We are a conglomeration of influences, of people, of the work of the Holy Spirit, and of culture. You take the same DNA and biomatter that makes me up, and you drop me into a different family at a different time period, and I become a completely different person. Uh, We have a nature, but it is nurtured over time as a person we are evolves and becomes the thing we call the self. Now, I say it's a hybrid sermon, and by that, I mean I'm not going to exegete a single scripture, uh, as we typically do. Instead, I want to share with you my testimony. This is a good day for me to simply share a bit of who I am, um, which is both my journey to faith and my journey to self. I don't think I have a super unique or super interesting story. 
uh, but I think that it can be used to illustrate a broader point, at least I hope it can. Uh, I'm not going to hold back or hide details. I don't believe in wearing masks, especially in a church community. Um, this is the type of community where uh, we can experience love and transformation. It becomes a crucible of hope. I want to be known in this community, and I want to know you with the same type of intimacy. I think it is one of the great gifts of what we get to do and experience in the church. It's a raw, vulnerable, unhidden, unmasked intimacy. And then after I share my testimony, uh, I want to look at three implications uh, from my story. Uh, they're broader than my story. Um, and I want to uh, leave us with an application hopefully we can take out of here and, and, and live different lives. But before I do that, let me open us in prayer. Sweet Jesus, we come before you and we are a people of such diverse backgrounds and mixed experiences. Our, our needs and our hopes, they run the full gamut. And somehow, God, we get to come together under one roof as one body to be called your bride, the church. I confess before my friends here, Lord, that I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to say except for what you want to say. So, God, I submit myself to your Holy Spirit. I ask that you come, that you speak through me, that you speak the right words, the right people at the right time, Lord, that we might all walk out of here having said, wow, the Spirit really just talked to me. I may be glorified in our midst. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, traditionally, a testimony covers three areas of a person's life, um, who they were before Christ, how they became a Christian or experienced um, um, being born again, and then who they are uh, since that experience. Um, I want to do that, and the best way to do that is to start at the beginning. Um, and I'm not sure, yeah, <laughs> or I could start at the end and work my way backwards, Logan. Um, I consider myself, um, <laughs> Marsha's laughing because my knees are on the ground. Actually, What's disappointing is this chair is super short and my feet still barely touch. So that's, that's kind of messing with me up here. I want you to know that when I uh, go to heaven, though, I will, I will be six foot five. And I'll have long dreads and I'll be ripped. And of course, I'm probably aiming too low that everyone will be much taller than that and I'll still be a shorty. But that's how I see it myself. And as an Italian, I'm already 10 foot tall in my own head. So, okay. I consider myself a super blessed person. Uh, I was uh, born into uh, a family that had a rough start of it. My mom was 17, had just become 18 when she became pregnant with me. Uh, I keep looking over at my parents over here in the white shirt and, and black shirt, and um, they're super sweet, so I'm glad they're here. Um, my mom was 17 when she got pregnant with me, 18 when she had me. Uh, she went to the same high school that I went to, so I like to say that I graduated twice from Whitefield High School, once in her womb, and once 18 years later when I was walking across the stage. So I'm really educated. Um, they came, my parents came from a really uh, different backgrounds. Uh, my mom had basically a, a leave it to beaver uh, type of upbringing. My dad had the exact opposite, tremendous brokenness in his home. Somehow they came together with deep love, um, and combine these, these, these different lives into something that, that still exists. But it wasn't easy. They had to work hard. They had to fight for it. 
My early days as a child uh, were filled with confusion. Uh, I was uncertain. Um, I always knew there was a foundation of love, never had a question about my parents loving me. Um, but there was, there, was, there was patterns of addiction, uh, some anger, um, stuff that's not all too different than what a lot of us have experienced growing up. And so I remember as a child just kind of being unsure and a little scared, um, but always aware that there was something or someone out there. I remember as a little child praying uh, every single night, not sure to who, um, I called him God. I thought he might actually be my grandfather. I, I would say, dear Jesus slash grandpa. I wasn't sure because he was my experience of, of, of who God is. Um, and that went on through my early childhood. Uh, my mom fought hard for the family. She would take us to church. Um, she was constantly talking to us about Jesus. My grandparents did the same thing. So we had a lot of exposure to it. But I would not describe us as as a Christian family, per se. And then something quite remarkable happened. Um, and the beginnings of it were terrifying to me. My dad, in 1993, went to Promise Keepers. Now, he didn't go because he cared to learn about Jesus. Uh, he didn't go because he wanted to go sing worship songs with a bunch of men. He went because my grandfather, who was a huge CU Buffs fan, uh, as many of you know that uh, uh, Coach Bill McCartney was a founder of Promise Keepers, uh, my grandpa was a big CU fan, so he got tickets to this thing called Promise Keepers and, and invited my dad kicking and screaming. And I remember they left on a Friday, came back on a Sunday. And that Friday when they, when they went up there to Boulder, uh, my dad dropped me off at my grandma's house, and he was so angry. I thought he was going to hurt my grandpa <laughs> that weekend for taking him to, to this, 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 this male thing where they get together. And so I had no idea what was happening. But what I do know and what I will never forget is what happened when my dad came home. It was a Sunday evening, and this man who I looked up to as being strong, as being a phenomenal athlete, uh, as being passionate, but oftentimes angry, he came in and he was physically different. His entire countenance was different. And I remember him taking a couple steps into our living room in, 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 in through heaves and sobs trying to describe what he has experienced. He mentioned things like Jesus and love and grace and wanting to take over our family and wanted to lead us in a new direction. And I knew it was my dad, but he sure seemed so much different. And that started a process for me of watching him very, very closely over the next days and weeks and months. My dad's not a passive person. When he gets on fire for something, he's all or nothing. He's all in. So he had this experience at Promise Keepers. He's born again. He has a spirit in him. He's passionate. He wants nothing more than for his family uh, to come to new faith. Prior to Promise Keepers, his experience of Jesus was at Young Life when he was a high schooler, also at Whitefield High School. And so I was heading off to my freshman year or sophomore year in high school, and he decided when Josh goes off to high school, he has to go to Young Life. And so he did what a, a, a dad would do. He called the Young Life office and said, hey, I really need my son to go to Young Life. Where does he go? When does it start? And the then area director, Pam Moore, said, well, we don't have Young Life at Whitefield, but we have leadership camp coming up in a week, and you're welcome to start it. And within a month, my dad, who went from being a healthy pagan to a new believer, 
started Young Life at my high school and changed my life. Now my parents, yes, yeah. My parents are super cool. I'm only sort of cool. Uh, they were on my, my high school campus all the time. They were 10 times more popular than, than, than I was. People knew me as Mike's son and, and, and Christy's son. But they started this outrageous ministry called Young Life at my high school and had hundreds, and now they've had thousands of kids come through their home, um, taking kids to camp, leading kids in Bible studies, spending on literally thousands of hours uh, raising funds for kids to go to camp. My sophomore year in high school, I go through Young Life. I hear my dad tell these unbelievable stories about Jesus, about his miracles and his goodness and his love and his grace. And I get to go off to a Young Life summer camp called Frontier Ranch up in Buena Vista. And it was at that camp that I had my big Jesus experience. Uh, there was a speaker, a guy named Steve Chesney, great speaker, told the story of sin, told the story of our depravity, told the story of brokenness and our helplessness, and it connected in a way it never had before. I knew I was in deep need of a Savior, that I could do nothing on my own. There's a night they send you out. You get to process under the stars. It's 15-minute quiet time. And I could take one step out of the, uh, the club room, and I collapsed my own tears and sat by the door and just begged for God to come in and, and, and to heal me and to cleanse me and to restore me, and that's exactly what he did. So the, the roots of my faith are a direct result of my dad's faithfulness, uh, from which I'm eternally grateful. Now, I said I watched him, and I watched him closely as he transformed. He went from being one kind of person to a new creation. To this day, after being in ministry for a long time, doing Young Life, being on church staff, doing other parachurch work, I've still never seen a person transform like my dad did. It's one of the reasons why he's one of my great heroes. One of the images I have of my dad is having quiet times. And I don't know how he, he knew to do this, but he would spend hours in our living room on his belly, face down with the Bible. This is his Bible. It's one of my great cherished possessions. If my house ever catches on fire, this is the first thing I'm grabbing. <laughs> and someone told him, you're supposed to underline verses, you're supposed to um, highlight verses. And he would sit there and he would underline every single verse. And, and you can't see it, you can't see it, but it's in yellow and it's in orange and it's green and it's marked up and the pages are falling out. And this tattered Bible is the evidence of a transformed life. It's how I was discipled, not always with his words, but without question, always by his actions. The image of him on his belly before Christ, worshiping, studying, is what shaped me to the person I am. So I had a great young life experience. I grew deeply. I watched friends grow deeply. It's one of the great cherished seasons of my life. Um, I also, in that time span of, of high school and early college, I started to develop a duplicitous life. I had my public persona, which was engaged in young life. I started doing my own young life ministry. I got to disciple junior high kids and high school kids. But there was brokenness still in me. And that lived in the shadows, and it was hidden. And I said, I'm not going to pull any punches, and I'm not going to pull any punches. I don't want to be a completely open book with you, but I want to be open with you. And I struggled mightily, mightily with, with addiction. 
of all kinds, of all sorts. An addiction unchecked, it grows, it becomes more nefarious, and the goal of it, which is filled by Satan, is to consume our lives. And it did. It did for me. It consumed my life. I progress through college. I go on Young Life staff. I go off to Portland, Oregon, and meet um, my future bride, Holly, who is the true great love of my life. We, after two years of dating, get married, move from Santa Barbara back to Colorado Springs, have a messy first year of marriage, and it all crashes uh, right before our first anniversary. I lost my ministry. I lost my vocation. I should have lost my wife. It's truly a miracle that she stood by me, but she did. I was at rock bottom. There was nothing. I was stripped of all identity. I was terrified. I was consumed with fear. But I also experienced a freedom I had not experienced in my entire adult life. The truth of who I was was starting to come out. I could tell my deep secrets. I didn't have to lie. I didn't have to be in the shadows. I entered into a process of recovery, spent tens of thousands of dollars on counseling, thousands of hours of counseling in 12-step groups and, and group counseling and meeting with people and just slowly and surely regained my life. Now, I was convinced, I was absolutely convinced that after my fall, I would never, ever be able to reclaim my ministry. I was convinced I'd spend the rest of my life building fences. And that's what I did for a long time. Did handyman work, a lot of grunt work, built bathrooms, painted houses, anything I could uh, to put, to put uh, food on the table and to support my family. I was convinced that God had no plan for restoration for me. I was told that restoration wasn't for now, but it's for the other side of heaven. And I believed a really bad theology that wasn't meant for me. But something happened. Something happened. This God who had pursued me since the time I was a little child, this God who pursued my dad through, through promise keepers, this God who was faithful in the wife that he provided, this God who was faithful in the ministry of young life that he provided, this God who stood by me through the lowest moments of my life never left. His love never ceased. It never faded. It never failed. And I began to have the seeds of hope that maybe perhaps I can return to ministry at some point. And that took a lot of risk and took a lot of courage to allow myself to believe that maybe God wanted this for him, that maybe he was going to restore what the locusts had eaten. Maybe he was going to give me this ministry and passion back. And so, gosh, seven, eight years ago, I took a risk and I wrote a letter to my then church, Woodland Valley Chapel, just down the street. And I disclosed my whole story. This is who I am. I'm a broken man, but I've, I've experienced a ton of restoration. I have a passion. I have a heart. Is it possible for me to, to come on staff in any capacity? And they brought me on. They brought me on not to offer me cheap grace, but to offer me costly grace. To say that you are worthy of restoration. That this isn't cheap language. That it has meaning and value that you are part of the team. So I spent five years working at Woodland Valley Chapel, a really fun job where I did research for our, our senior pastor. I spent my days reading books and reading theology and reading philosophy and, and helping him study scripture. And it was phenomenal. And I loved it. And I grew a ton. And I re experienced a rebirth and trust that the church is a safe place. It's where God met me. They go through a uh, leadership transition. I ended up leaving Wooden Valley Chapel. This is 2014. And I decided this is the season for me to, to start seminary. 
So in the fall of 14, I started going to, to Fuller Seminary. I'm now at the very tail end of working through a Master of Divinity. It's been an incredible process. It's been super hard. It's been exhausting. There have been nights where, where I have just sat in bed shaking, wondering if I can maintain my faith. And every time, this faithful God of pursuit keeps showing up and keeps me right where I'm at. Um, I'm at the end of seminary. I start to wonder if I've just spent all this money and time and it's been a really expensive devotional or if it leads somewhere. And so my wife is starting to push and, and say, do you think you should start looking for a job? I'm like, yeah, maybe I should start doing that. And I did. And I looked all over the country. She's from California. We explored and explored and explored, had interviews, dead ends. And I started to get really discouraged until I saw this, this, this posting for a little church called Springs Community Church is looking for a pastor to help bring the kingdom, to help disciple others, um, to help develop community and outreach. And so on a whim, I applied for it. And I received a letter back from this church that communicated a depth of theology that I really resonated with and I connected with. And that started a, a process, a three-month process of, of interviewing and meeting people and falling in love and becoming excited. And... I get to be here. And I don't feel like I deserve that. My mom was 18 when she got pregnant. She could have given me up. She could have had an abortion. There was tons of pressure to do that. But this little teenage girl had so much courage and fought for me and gave me a life that's undeserved. And so when I say I get to be here, I mean, I get to be here and I cherish it and I feel so privileged. Each of you, I hope, feel privileged that you get to be here, that you have life and breath in your lungs. I'm a man who's been rescued from sin, a man who's experienced redemption and restoration, a man who drinks for the cup of costly grace, a man of passion and conviction. I've had great men in my life, great women in my life. I have a fabulous wife, as I said, three phenomenal boys. They're crazy, but they're pretty rad. I absolutely adore them. I love theology, but my faith isn't primarily theological or philosophical in nature. It's experiential. As I've been touched at the deepest parts of me by the overwhelming love and beauty of God. I'm a man on fire. And my great hope in ministry is to be part of flaming the hope and love and passion of other people. I am the result of God-given DNA, of a nurturing family, of the work of the Holy Spirit. What was knit together in the womb of my mother has been shaped over 38 years of life. Many influences and many choices. That's true for each of us here. We've not arrived at this point in our lives by accident, I believe that every detail, every nuance, every joy and sorrow is part of what God is weaving together to make you, to make me, to make us. His fingerprints are everywhere. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> like all of our stories, I think we can draw many conclusions from my testimony. But for our purposes today, I want to highlight three truisms that I think apply to us as we examine what it means to be known and to know. First, 
we are known when we notice others. I talked about noticing my dad, and in noticing him, I became. Our lives are not hidden. We do not develop and grow in isolation. We are shaped. I was noticed and poured into by great teachers. I was noticed and poured into by great parents and grandparents. I was noticed and poured into by great ministry leaders. I was never allowed to stagnate. I was brought along in life. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. In the book, In a Heartbeat, Sean and Lee and Tui, the couple portrayed in the movie The Blind Side, uh, they share a story about a congressional program that awards internships to young people who have aged out of the foster care system. These are kids who are never adopted and no longer eligible for state support. Now, a senator employed one such man as an intern. One morning, the senator breezed in for a meeting and saw his intern already in the office, reorganizing the mailroom. The senator said to the intern, this is amazing. The mailroom has never looked so clean. You did a great job. A few minutes later, the senator saw the intern, had tears streaming down his face. And he said, son, are you okay? Yes, the intern answered quietly. Did I say something to offend you? No, sir. Well, what's wrong? The young man said, that's the first time in my life anyone's told me that I did something good. You are who you are because others have noticed you. So let me ask you, who are you noticing? Who are you pouring into? Your eyes for others and the words you shower them with have the power to shape them forever. The words of a father, of a grandfather, of a teacher, of a friend, of a pastor are transformative in shaping a life. My hope for us is that we'd be a people with eyes that look out and notice others, that our gaze, our touch, and our tongue will be part, become part of the testimony of other people. Second, we are known when we let ourselves be known by others. First, when we notice others. Second, when we let ourselves be known by others. In my story, there are moments of great vulnerability. I've not always wanted to, but I've had to let others in. I love these two sayings, no man is an island, and we're only as sick as our deepest secrets. I want to present to you as all together, as capable. I want my children to see me as an ubermensch, as a superman. I want to be the hero, but I'm simply not. I'm broken and beautifully redeemed. Sociologist Brene Brown uh, gave a TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability. Uh, it's generated tens of millions of YouTube hits. For good reason. We are hungry for freedom to admit our vulnerability. Brown pushes us to embrace our own brokenness with the reality that we are not alone in it, that we are, or easily could be, just one step away from the broken people all around us. Brown says this. We are those people. The truth is, we are the others. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being those people. The ones we don't trust, 
the ones we pity, the ones we don't let our children play with, the one bad things happen to, the ones we don't want living next door. Now, this is free of charge. I'm let you on in all in on a little secret. Everyone knows you're not perfect. Everyone here already knows you're not perfect. We assume you have moments and habits you're not proud of. If you're willing to risk being vulnerable with others, I promise there is grace and there is love waiting for you. Amen. Yes. Now, I'm not suggesting you broadcast your life uh, for all to see, uh, but that you'd be judicious and share your story with trusted others in a small group, the trusted neighbor, uh, with the pastor, preferably with Beth <laughs> or Eric. <laughs> Inviting them to see you without your masks on. Who are we without our masks, without our makeup, without our pretend games? That is part of the kingdom of life we talk about here, a community of grace and a community of vulnerability that is honored and stewarded well. And third, and this is the most important piece, we are most known when we are known by and submitted to God. I think my life and our lives have no real meaning apart from God. He animates our existence, gives our life purpose, and continually invites us into deeper life. Even Solomon, who earlier said, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, comes around to conclude, honor and enjoy your creator while you're still young. Before the years take their toll and your vigor wanes, before your vision dims and your world blurs, and the winter years keep you close to the fire. The last and final word is this, he says, Fear God and do what he tells you. Maybe you recall the words of Invictus, the poem by William Ernest Tinley. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud, under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the whore of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. No. Not true. Our final identity is not in our own assessment of self or our own convictions of self-reliance, the conquerable, unconquerable soul, the unbowed head, the self-avowed captain is at great risk of missing the redeeming work of Jesus, which is both eternally salvific and pregnant with purpose and meaning for right now. You cannot be fully known apart from your creator. Someone once wrote the Christian rejoinder to Invictus. May, this be our, may these be our words. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright is the sun from pole to pole. I thank the God I know to be for Christ the conqueror of my soul. Since he's the sway of circumstance, 
I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him, and he's the aid, that spite diminished of the years keeps and shall keep me unafraid. It matters not, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishments the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ, the captain of my soul. Through being noticed and poured into as well as noticing others and pouring into them, through being vulnerable and revealing our hidden selves with others, and by submitting our lives to Christ as the captain of our souls, we become the people God intends us to be. Let me conclude with this. I've taken a long time uh, to get to our signature verse. It's up there, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. But I wanted to wait to the end to get to it. It seems out of place in the first verse in chapter 11. It's actually the concluding thought of the previous chapter where Paul is talking about the freedom Christians have to live less religious lives. He says that, he says what initially sounded like a command, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But here's what I've learned in my life. It's not a command. It's an observation. People will imitate us as we imitate or don't imitate Christ. My sons will copy me. You will copy your pastors. And so the question is, what and who and how are we imitating Christ? Why well, I think we do it by noticing others, by making ourselves vulnerable, and by submitting our lives before Jesus. The people in your life, your spouse, your friends, your children, your coworkers, everyone you have contact with and influence over will indeed imitate you. That is both awesome and it is terrifying. My hope for us as a people who will be good imitators of Christ, that we be a people of grace, a people of love, a people of vulnerability, a people who are unabashed by love for Christ, a people whose testimony can be told over and over and over through words and through actions. Amen and amen.